Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. All right, why I don't get the gospel. Adam and Eve fell by being convinced of lies about God and his character and believing lies about themselves and their standing with him. This is one of the biggest issues that we wrestle with. We have unhealthy views of God and we have unhealthy views of ourselves. And those two together are a gnarly and awful combination. The lie that God is not for you, that he's against you, that he withholds good things from you, that his warnings are meaningless and that he can't be trusted. I'm going to have to take care of myself because God won't take care of me. And these lies are deeply embedded in our DNA and it's going to require us encountering the truth and daily reflecting upon that truth to overcome them. Right? The default settings, the factory settings for us as humans is we're crazy people. Isaiah says the whole head is sick. He also says that we take refuge in lies. And so it's going to take us encountering truth to overwrite those lies that we believe by default. And maybe this is why Ellen White encourages us to spend a thoughtful hour every single day reflecting upon the life of Christ and particularly the closing scenes, right? The part of of Christ's life that so clearly speaks life and healing into us. So believing these lies leads us to make decisions that harm ourselves and others, which then leads us to be filled with shame, guilt, self-hatred, and thoughts of condemnation. This is why you can have people who love Jesus but hate themselves. Why you can have people who love Jesus but don't really know for sure if he actually loves them, like really. Like he loves me in principle because he died for me and stuff, but does he really like me? Would he actually enjoy my company? Does he still look at me with disappointment and disgust? So something we're going to have to better wrap our minds around as a people is the fact that sin is not merely physical or verbal actions or unholy thoughts. Though it is those things, it's not merely that. Sin is deeply embedded in the psyche. It's an outworking of a belief system of lies that we're believing at the very core of our being. And Satan is the author of those lies, as it says in John 8 and verse 44. And so it's in this context that we've become so hardened through our guilt and shame that a gospel that offers a solution and receiving love that we know that we don't deserve awakens opposition and suspicion. That when we hear the true gospel message, the beauty of the gospel message in Christ and his righteousness, for some of us it awakens suspicion, right? It awakens a sense of opposition. Yeah, but what role do I play? Like I got to do something in this equation, right? It awakens that within us. And this is why we don't believe the gospel and would prefer a solution that comes from within ourselves and our own efforts instead of learning to find security in the achievements of another. This is what most Babylonian religions look like, most false religions look like. I have to do things to get the gods to notice me. I have to appease the gods by my good deeds and so forth. Then we good, right? Then we're okay. And the problem is, many of us can take those factory settings into a biblical religion setting. And it's called syncretism, where you're taking one form of religious systems and principles and applying them in another religious context. And some of us find ourselves living a Babylonian experience while seeking to be godly Seventh-day Adventists, because we don't know how to shut those factory settings off, and the gospel just seems so foreign to us. I would feel better about trying to earn my salvation myself, knowing fairly well that I'll never get there, than have to face the fact that I have nothing to offer, and I need someone else to give me something that I know good and well that I don't deserve. We have to come face to face with that tension, right? With those lies that are in our hearts and our minds. 
But thankfully, the call that Jesus received in Isaiah chapter 61 says that he was to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison of those who were bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Do you know how many people there are in our movement today who are not convinced that God actually accepts them? It's far more than you would like to hear. We know a lot about what God expects of us, but we don't really know how to get there happy with us until we get there. Three ABN's pastoral department is getting an alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors who have zero assurance of salvation. That's a true story. And yet we're telling people that Jesus is coming soon. How can Jesus come soon with the people when the people who are supposed to be sharing the three angels' messages with the world don't even know if God loves them and if they're good enough? This is part of what we're going to have to wrestle with. This is why we need to have this family discussion of why we're prone to not believe the gospel. Okay, But Jesus came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I accept you. Ephesians 1 tells us that you are, current tense, accepted in the beloved. Amen? That because of Jesus, you are accepted in the beloved. He came to comfort those who mourn, to console those who mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garments of praise for a spirit of heaviness. This verse shows us that God has a plan to unravel all these lies we're prone to believe, the shame and the thoughts of condemnation. And he sends Jesus to do a powerful work of redemption for us and to deliver us from the emotional and psychological havoc that sin has brought in its train. Sin does not just cause spiritual damage. You know that, right? doesn't even just cause physical damage. It makes a mess of us emotionally and mentally, right? It ravages us. And this is why I'm so passionate about that topic of mental health. But it says in 64, 61 of verse 4 of Isaiah, and they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. This is, why our lives, this is what our lives feel like, like ruins, like wastelands when we see what our sins have done to us and the people around us and what other people's sins have done to us. It makes us feel like a heap of ruins, but the true gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ our righteousness, has this very healing effect upon people. It's happened in my own life. I've seen that happen in my students' lives, right? And there's case studies of this. Soon after, uh, A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner were bringing a most precious message to the church where people were finding healing and freedom and forgiveness for the first time in their lives while believing the message for many, many years, okay? They knew a lot about the expectations of God, but they didn't know how God viewed them while they were striving to reach that ideal. And for many of our people, it felt like the, the statement that Jesus made to the religious leaders, that you heap large weight upon men's shoulders, but you won't live a finger to help them. Like you won't lift a finger to help them. There are many people in our own movement that feel this way, that God expects a lot of me. In fact, if you saw the studies that came out recently that they shared at the uh, NAD meetings, um, the NAD National, Con- or the uh, called National Convention, they were showing that one of the largest percentage answers that people gave for why they left the Adventist church was because they felt that they'd never be good enough. They felt they, they couldn't actually meet the standard. So it wasn't really fair to stick around if I can't actually meet what it is that God's asking of me. So I'll save everybody else the weight, I'll save everybody else the trouble, and I'll just leave. This is a real thing, guys. And so I want to talk into that space. Romans chapter 7, verse 18 and 24. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. This is many of our... 
I know what God asks of me. I know the law should be a part of my life. But how to actually walk a successful Christian experience? Yeah, I don't know how to get there. I don't know what that looks like. I'm thankful that Paul says this because many of us wrestle with this too. Then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, In the late 1800s, many of our people had this same experience of failure and confusion while earnestly desiring to serve God, making a seeming failure of their Christian experience while actually loving God and wanting to serve him. And many today are having that same experience. I know what God wants, but I don't know how to get there. And we feel so condemned by our failed attempts. But those revivals that happen after this precious message was given to the church show us that freedom is found when we see our message in its proper perspective and understand what our role is and God's role is in this plan for our transformation. And also when we see how God views us in that journey. And uh, I want to talk about that. There's some recommended reading I have for this. Um, There's a book called Return of the Latter Rain, Volume 1 by Ron Duffield. He has two chapters in that book called The 1889 Revivals that will blow your mind. That the latter rain was literally falling in Adventism in 1889, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, and a little bit in 96. God's spirit was being poured out in greater measure as a heaven-sent endorsement of a most precious message meant to set our people free and to bring others into our movement with a truth that makes sense and is beautiful. And it was heaven's endorsement. So, um, we got a problem. Okay, let's go into the the tenets of the gospel. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but in the Greek, in the original language, it's actually in the continuative, that all have sinned and we continue to fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of that sin is, it's death, it's what we deserve. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says that that sin separates us from God, not that God looks at us and says, ooh, cooties, and runs the other direction. It literally causes us to push ourselves away from him. And John 1 and verse 4 says that he's that source of life. So death is the logical result. So death is punishment from God. It's a consequence of separating oneself from God, who is a source of life. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why God did not say, in the day you eat of it, I will kill you. He said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There are consequences to these decisions. So humanity is facing a massive two-phase problem here. Death, and that which causes death, sin. But God's posture towards us does not change even though we have fallen. His posture has always been for us and not against us. And we see that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It says that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice, Jesus did not come here to convince the Father to love you. That's not what he came here for. The Bible says that God, because he already loved you, sent Jesus. And he did that before you got anything right. Notice, we didn't have to put in our tokens of good deeds or penance or something else to convince God to look at us favorably and then to love and accept us. God already accepts you, and that's why he sent Jesus, to make that clear. Amen? Because he sees something of value in you. So even though we've sinned, God, seeing us in our darkest condition, sent Jesus to die for us and to provide us complete salvation. So God took the initiative and didn't wait for us to do something before he came after us and he began that work of redemption on our behalf. This is really good news for us. God is not reactionary. He makes the first move before we get anything right. And when we encounter his love for us, this is what awakens a reciprocating love in our own hearts. 1 John 4 and verse 19 says that we love him, why? 
because he first loved us, which tells me that no one is going to find love in their hearts today until they first encounter God's love for them, right? Our love for God is a response to his preexistent love. And this most precious message shows that picture of God's love better than anything I've ever seen. We don't naturally possess the righteousness that the law requires. We don't have that. We lost our robes of righteousness as a people when Adam and Eve fell. We became naked and without a covering. But thankfully, we also see in Genesis 3 that God preaches the gospel of a suffering Messiah who will come and crush the serpent's head. There's a very interesting statement of transition as well, by the way, at the end of Genesis 2 going into Genesis 3. The transition from our unfallen state to our fallen state, it says that they were naked and felt no shame. I think this is fascinating because shame was not God's intention for your experience. Never has been and never will be. Those feelings of self-hatred, that I'm not good enough, that I'm a loser, that I'm dirty, that I stink, that I'm worthless, I'm not good enough. All of those thoughts do not come from God. When God created us, shame was never supposed to be part of our experience. It's a byproduct of sin and the inward spiral of self-hatred that comes as a result of that. Romans 8 breaks down what Jesus made available to us through conquering Satan. It says this in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? Who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus' death cancels, all that, cancels out all the death that we deserve, and he delivers us from condemnation that we deserve in the judgment. It's credited to our account when we place faith in Jesus. We see that the Spirit is the agent that God uses to set us free from that cycle of sin and death. It's so strong that he literally equates it to a law. Like It's so strong and pervasive were it not for an encounter with the gospel. So the solution so far seems to be our need to be in Christ and have the Spirit do a work in our lives that we desperately need. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what happens? We're viewed as a new creation. We become a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Okay? Now, Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says that what the law could not do, save us, and it was weak through the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law, God did on our behalf by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in flesh like ours. And on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. And we're told why in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay? So when we are found in Christ, all of his achievements are credited to us, and this is also what empowers us to live a different life. This is why you do things differently than you used to when you didn't believe in Jesus, right? You can testify to this. I'm sure everybody has some form of testimony. There were things I could not stop doing, and when I started believing in Jesus, all of a sudden, my desires began to change. My appetite began to change. That's why. This is what the Spirit is doing for you as you're in Christ. So this is what is implied when you hear the phrase, Christ, our righteousness. We have earned no righteousness. We have not achieved righteousness. We have access to what was achieved in the past, in Christ, and it becomes a present reality in our lives through faith and the outworking of his Holy Spirit. Ellen White talks about this in the Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. She says, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. It's credited to us. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. That's the tangible delivery of Jesus' righteous life in your life. She says, the first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Okay? So this is such good news for people that we are literally, and, and many of our people don't know this, we are declared righteous 
while God is making us righteous. This is such good news. Some of us think that when I sin, I'm not saved anymore, and then I have to repent, and then I'm really saved again, and then we're on this like back and forth train that is miserable. It's this awful, exhausting, terrible, painful experience, and it's because we don't get the gospel. That God has provision for you, that when you are walking with Jesus and longing to serve him, Ellen White makes a statement in Steps of Christ that we will many times have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and failures. She's speaking to Christians. Now, am I saying that God wants you to keep on sinning? Of course not. We see this in 1 John. Beloved, I wish you didn't sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen? We have an advocate. You are declared righteous while God is on that journey of making you righteous and making into he longs for you to be. And I'm so thankful for that. Ellen White has this beautiful statement. She says, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God. The work of who? The work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men and women see their nothingness, it's then that they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we recognize what we don't bring to the table, that we need a savior, that we are wholly incapable of changing ourselves, now Jesus can do that most precious work. That's what he needs from us, okay? So when we recognize that we bring nothing to the table in and of ourselves, that we need a righteousness that we can't conjure up on our own, it's humbling, isn't it? To have to acknowledge what you aren't. It lays our glory in the dust, and this falling upon the rock of Christ leads us to plead with him to be our righteousness and to save us from ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. And if we do that, there's very good news, because in John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Can you say amen to that this morning? That if you come to Jesus recognizing your need, he's not going to cast you out. This is good news for us today. When you see how insufficient you are, it will drive you to Jesus. And when you come to him, he's not going to push you away. You can walk away on your own. You have freedom to do that. But Jesus has no intention of pushing you away, which means then that God does not have a posture of being against you. He's for you. Exodus chapter 18... uh, Exodus chapter 19, actually, and Exodus chapter 24, there are three instances where God brings the law before the people, and their response to what God expects of them is, all the Lord has said, we will do, we will do, we will do, and be obedient. Three separate times they make this statement. Let me ask you a very simple question today. Did they? Oh, all right. Yeah, they didn't, right? Less than 40 days later, they're running laps around a golden calf in pagan revelry. It's a mess, guys. It's terrible. They saw that the law was important, and it caused them to respond with the promise to obey. But the worldview of the nation of Israel at this time, right, was an appeasement-based worldview. They spent 400 years in Egypt, where you have to do things to appease the frog gods, the sea gods, and everything else, the river gods, and the fly gods, and the gnat gods, the sun gods. You have to do all these things to appease these deities, so you can just get through life without too many problems, So they come into this experience. This is, again, a syncretism. They're taking Egyptian religion and trying to apply that in a godly context. And it didn't go too well for them, did it? No, it was miserable for them. And so they didn't understand that God doesn't work this way, right? you got to do all the work to get the gods to notice you. But the God of the Bible 
according to Exodus 25 and verse 8, longs to dwell among us even though we have sinned and taken actions to separate ourselves from him. In John 1 and verse 14, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us, and I would add God for us. But they didn't have that picture of God, and in turn, they responded as they did. And they still didn't get it many years later. Go to Joshua chapter 24. This is a heartbreaking, kind of weird passage at first glance. Go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. This is the end of Joshua's life. He's about to pass on, right? He was an understudy of Moses. He saw Moses go through the heartbreak of dying before these people actually became who they were supposed to be, before the promised land and all of that. You get to Joshua chapter 24 and verse 9. Uh, I'll skip actually down to verse 14. Joshua's giving this last appeal to the people, pouring his heart out to them. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that are on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. How many people have one of those placards in their house somewhere? A cross stitch, a little, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful ver- verse, right? But here's the context of that. Joshua's pleading with these people, stop messing around. Let God do what he wants to do in your life. And their response sounds kind of good initially. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Quote all this history, right? And so they close in verse 18. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And then comes what sounds like the worst pastoral appeal ever. How many people have been present? Maybe this is a bad thing to ask in a local church when your pastor's here and he's my friend. Uh, But like, how many people have been in this scenario where like you've been in an evangelistic series or something else and it was just like a really just mangled appeal, it was just kind of ugly and cringy? Don't raise your hands, just kind of give that little nod so that no one else can see. You ever been there? You ever seen those? One of those seemingly happens here in Joshua chapter 24. So they say, hey, we're going to serve the Lord. And the response of Joshua here is in verse 19. He says, you can't serve the Lord for he's a holy God, he's a jealous God, and he's not going to forgive your transgressions or your sins. Can you imagine? Your pastor makes the appeal, serve God or don't serve God, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they say, yeah, us too, Joshua, we're going to serve the Lord. And your pastor's response is, you can't serve the Lord, and he's not going to forgive your sins. Gary, dad, are you aware of what's going on in my local church? Like, it would be bad, right? Well, the Andrew Study Bible actually comments on this and gives a beautiful, beautiful commentary that I think makes perfect sense of what we just read. They say this. This reaction of Joshua to Israel's pledge of commitment echoes Israel's similar pledge at Sinai many years earlier. Exodus 19 and 24, all the Lord has said, we will do. Even though the words were appropriate, they say, the people needed to realize that it was not enough to make a brave declaration and pledge of allegiance. They also needed to recognize their inability in themselves to obey God and that they could not be forgiven while they were depending upon their own strength and righteousness. They needed to trust wholly in the merits of the promised Savior who would forgive their sins and give them power to obey. Do you see the difference? I think this is so, so helpful. There's more that could be said here on the covenants, but I'm not going to go into that just for time's sake. But the issue is not 
the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, the issue was not God or the law. The issue was the self-righteousness of the people. Remember that statement that Ellen White made, that when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The nation of Israel did not see their nothingness. We can handle it. Whatever you want, we got it, no problem. They didn't see it. So they weren't in a place to receive the righteousness of Christ. The unfortunate truth of the matter is, some of us may struggle with that was seeing our nothingness and recognizing what we don't bring to the table. And the message of the covenant is supposed to teach us that. That was part of the message that God gave to the church, the most precious message through elders Wagner and Jones. Well, the purpose behind the covenants was to help the people recognize that God is the one who ensures the people obey, not the people doing this themselves. They didn't understand that. This is why the new covenant is the promise of God in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 that I will write my law in your hearts and in your minds. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments to do them. I will give you a new heart. I will cleanse you from your idolatry. I will cleanse you from your brokenness. I will give you a heart of flesh and remove your heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my judgments. This is the new covenant experience and that your sins and lawless deeds I'll remember no more. This beautiful gospel promise was available to Israel at Sinai. They didn't understand that, so they tried to do it themselves. They failed miserably. Then they saw their need of a savior and could receive the true covenant God always intended. Does that make sense? It's kind of the mess of the nation of Israel uh, and their history. Ellen White comments on this same principle uh, in Christ's Object Lessons 333. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, what happens to it? It becomes omnipotent. It becomes all-powerful. Whatever is to be done at God's command may be accomplished in whose strength? In his strength. And then she says, all his biddings are enablings. That everything that God asks us to do, he will empower us to do. In fact, there's creative power in that word to bring it about. She says this in Christ Object Lessons, page 38. In every command and in every promise of the word of God is the power. So where's the power found? in the command itself, in the word itself, okay? And in the promise itself. The very, she says, is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. The book of Genesis wasn't kidding when it says that God spoke and it was so. There's creative power to bring obedience into your life today, Amen. We don't have to be afraid of the expectations of God. We just need to understand that we don't have what it takes and we need his power to get there. Yeah? And we see this actually in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we have the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus comes up to the guy, has this conversation. I'll fast forward to the end of it. Jesus tells him to rise, take up his mat, and walk. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Right? This man's legs are like spaghetti noodles. He has no ability. His muscles have gone to atrophy. There is no ability in himself to rise, take up his mat, and walk. In fact, it even sounds kind of cruel if it's not Jesus that's saying it. If you were to go up to somebody who is paralyzed for unfortunate reasons and say, get up, that's super cruel. But we're talking about Jesus here, and Jesus knows this principle, that in the command of God is the power of God to walk in that command. So when Jesus tells this man to rise, take up his mat, and walk, he's inviting this man to receive the power of the command and to walk. And Ellen White talks about this in Desire of Ages 203. She says, through the same faith, we may receive spiritual healing. By sin, we've been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied. We're just as paralyzed at a soul level. 
of ourselves, we are no more capable of living a holy life than was that impotent man capable of walking. There are many who realize their helplessness and who long for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God, and they're vainly striving to obtain it. You ever been there? Longing to be who God wants you to be, but you're just impotent to get there. She continues. She says, in despair they cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Let these desponding, struggling ones look where? Look up. The Savior is bending over the purchase of his blood, saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity, wilt thou be made whole? He bids you arise in health and peace. And then she says, do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Had this guy waited for some holy mojo feeling in his legs to get up and walk, he never would have walked again. He had to take Christ at his word when he saw and felt nothing. She says, do not wait to feel that you are made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. Put your will, your power of choice on the side of Christ. Will to serve him. And when you act upon his word, what's going to happen? You will actually receive strength to do what he's asked. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver us today. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever just seems like this galling weight that you're never going to be able to overcome, Jesus is able and he longs to deliver you, but do you want that? Do you actually believe that's possible? Some of us have been so beat down at our failed attempts of obedience that we're living in a frame of mind that, uh, that um, Dr. Brene Brown talks about. She's a specialist on shame. She says it's easier to live disappointed than it is to be disappointed. It's easier, us for, easier for us to just live in a continual state of disappointment and not expect anything to change for the better than to get my hopes up and be hurt again. Some of us are living a faith experience that looks just like that. So we'll just cope by and hope we're good enough at the end of the day because every time I've tried, it doesn't work. What we need is his strength and faith and trust in what his word actually promises to do for us. Are you with me today, guys? God wants that to change today. The everlasting gospel is, most, uh, is meant to transform us. So the only reason then why Jesus would bear this long with people and love them in spite of who they've been is because Jesus sees something of value in them that they don't even see in themselves. This is part of the faith of Jesus, that he doesn't see you as you currently are. He sees you for what you can become, and he treats you as if that were true, and this awakens within you a desire to become what he sees that you can be by his grace and his strength. Okay, Revelation chapter three and verse 20 alludes to this. Jesus speaking to a church that isn't doing too great, right? His basic assessment of them is that you think you're rich and have need of nothing, but you're really poor, miserable, blind, and naked. In fact, it's so bad, he says, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're not. You're somewhere in the middle. You're lukewarm, and it literally brings him to the point of vomiting. Now imagine, if you were aware of the fact that God sees your religious experience as it currently is, and it literally makes him want to vomit, you would assume that God wants nothing to do with me that I'm cast off, that I'm forsaken, that I'm condemned. But to these very people who are in this experience, the response of God is, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. I'll offer you a solution in myself, a faith that works by love. White raiments, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then the last one is the hard one for some of us. ISAV, spiritual discernment to recognize our true condition. That's the hard one. Did you know that Ella White diagnosed the Advent movement as being in a Laodicean condition as early as 1852? 
That's eight years after the great disappointment, and that's 11 years before we were incorporated as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is something that we will have to wrestle with. It's the last church in the prophetic timeline, and the solution is found in Christ, and he's willingly wanting to give it to you. So in this context of a church whose experience makes him want to vomit, we see Jesus Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the Greek, in the, in the original language, it's in the continuative, which means that he has, knocking, has been knocking, he is knocking now, and has no intention of not knocking tomorrow. And it begs the question, why would someone stand and knock on a door day after day after week after month after year after year after year? It must be because there's something of value on the other side. Jesus persists in his pursuit, even though we're not who we should be. This is part of the most precious message that God has given us, and part of the Laodicean message, that Jesus is pursuing us, even though we're not where we should be. Ellen White talks about this in manuscript, uh, Selected Messages, Volume 3. She says, the faith of Jesus, it is talked of but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply, fully, and entirely is us receiving the faith of Jesus. Not only does he believe the things about you that you don't believe, that he sees things in you that you do not see, he also was willing to give the grandest display of the faith of Jesus at Calvary. A persevering faith that believes to the end, that rests in the Father's love, even though he felt abandoned and forsaken and alone. And that same faith is available to you. As we go through trials and difficulties, you were talking about the refiner's fire this morning in Sabbath school. As we go through these difficulties in life and we endure the deafening silence of God, when it feels that God is nowhere to be found, he doesn't care, he's not there, I wish he was, I don't know what's going on, in those moments the faith of Jesus can see us through. That Jesus went through the same experience of enduring the silence of God and he chose to rest in the Father's love heretofore revealed to him and he persevered to the end. So that when he claims in Psalm 22 and verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's also claiming in the middle of Psalm 22 where it says that you have answered me. And the psalm ends with praise. Jesus isn't just claiming the beginning of Psalm 22. He's claiming the entire chapter. And by faith, Ellen White says, Christ was victor. Amen? Jesus' faith persevered to the end. He's willing to give you that same experience. Another element of this most precious message. Speaking of God's belief in humanity, E.J. Wagner says this. He says, God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them. And there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and the most depraved if they are only willing and believe his word. This is what the faith of Jesus is meant to do for his people. That's the, uh, the Everlasting Covenant, by the way. If you have not read that book, it will change your life. The Everlasting Covenant, that was page 135.1. We have a slide for it, but I don't know if it kind of slowed down us. There we go. Uh, two more, one more, there you go, no, one more, there you go, uh, if you want to get a screenshot of that or whatever, I'm happy to give my slides to Jared, by the way, if anyone wants these, that's not a problem at all, or you can just 
I can email them later. This is why I believe now that Paul could say in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, is made manifest to us. From faith, Christ pursuing and overcoming faith, to faith, our reciprocating faith in him, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he's quoting from Habakkuk here, and in the original language it actually reads, the just shall live by his faith, by the faith of Jesus. This is what upholds and keeps the people of God. So you may feel that your whole life has been a total disaster and has no potential to bear fruit, that there's no hope and that you don't think that you're worth wasting any more of his time. And so you're saying, look, I've been sitting here year after year after year, and I'm no good, man. I haven't changed. I haven't grown. I'm not good enough. And the response of Jesus is to give me one more year. Heard the parable of the fig tree. Someone comes up to the landowner and says, hey, this tree doesn't put out. He says, no, 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 give me one more year. Give me one more year to just pour myself into this. I'll dig it up. I'll fertilize it. I'll pour myself into it. And then we'll see what happens. I believe God's appeal to us this morning is to give him one more year. I don't know where you are in your faith experience. I don't know what you're going through in your personal life. But I know there are many people, there are, these are difficult times we're living in. We're sitting here in normal clothes like normal people. But some of us have died inside because of what's happened over the last series of years of our life. And we're just wondering, man, how much longer am I going to be able to make this? This doesn't seem to be working for me. Where is God as I'm suffering? Where is God as I'm hurting and alone and wrestling with these things? I'm praying. For some of us, hearing prayer requests and, and, and praise in church is absolutely excruciating because everybody else has got answers to prayer, but my prayers aren't being answered. Maybe that's you today. And you're wondering, do I even continue doing this thing? Jesus, I believe, is pleading with you this morning. Give him one more year. Take time to dig into this most precious message. It offers solutions for our heartbreak, our discouragement, our misunderstanding of who we are and who God is. He has solutions for us. It brought revival to people in the past. It's bringing revival to people's lives today. He has solutions for you. Give them a year. Take time to study this message, to understand it for yourself, and to see if it changes your life. Come to him, broken as you are, and see what he can do for you. And if you come to Jesus, there's a precious promise given to us. Listen to this. The message from God to me is, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. This is Ellen White writing to a discouraged Christian. She says, if you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never never be turned away. Some of you may feel that you have nothing to offer Jesus today. Literally nothing. That's the best place you can be, first of all. But she says, if you have nothing to offer Jesus but this one promise in John chapter 6 and verse 37, that he who comes unto me and I will, I will in no wise cast out, if that's the only thing you have to offer Jesus, she says, you will never, never be cast away. But listen to this. She continues. It may seem that you're hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise, and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise, and you are safe. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And then she closes with a dynamite line. Present this assurance to Jesus, and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. 
If you have nothing to offer Jesus today, your life is a mess, it's ruins, it's shambles, you don't even know how you pulled yourself together to get here today. If that's all you have to offer Jesus is this one promise, you told me that if I just come to you, you will no wise cast me out. In that very moment, guys, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. There's a reason there are 12 gates on the New Jerusalem. Ease of access. Jesus is not looking for reasons to cast you out or push you away or disqualify you. He's looking for every good moral and ethical reason in the parameters of free will and the great controversy to get you into that city. So if you can just muster the courage to claim this one promise today, that he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out, you are guaranteed from the mouth of God today that you will not be cast out, and in this very moment, you are as safe as the inside of the city of God. Amen? Guys, he wants you there so bad. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. It's the chief desire of his heart. After Jesus died, if you remember this from a couple years ago, after Jesus died and eventually ascended into heaven, the angels erupt in praise. You've never seen a party like this in your life. And in that moment, as they're showering praise upon Jesus, Jesus tells them, no. He stops their praise. He refuses their worship. And he presses into the presence of the Father. And he has one question. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? That's all that matters to Jesus. You're always on the mind of Jesus. He can't sleep at night, guys. He's thinking about you all the time. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? And the Father says, yes. And he embraces his son for the first time in 33 and a half years. They want you there, guys. Do you want it? Are you willing to believe the things about you today that God believes? Will you take him at his word? And if you will, you're as safe as the inside of the city of God. There's some resources I would encourage if you want to take some screenshots of these or some pictures. These messages and these books have radically changed my life. My view of God is better than it's ever been by these materials. My view of myself is better than it's ever been by these materials. Just give God a chance. We were told that the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message through elders Joan and Wagner. It presented before the people, Jones and Wagner, it presented before the people a surety of Christ, right? It presented before the people the surety of Christ's acceptance. And it wasn't this ooey-gooey, feel-good, there's no role I play type of gospel. It was this perfectly balanced message of the law and the gospel going hand in hand. Take some time to read through these materials. There's uh, the previous slide. Um, uh, that one, if you haven't gotten a picture of that one. And then the next one. There you go. Those are some super helpful resources that you can get access to. If you're unacquainted with the history, you've heard weird things about the history. Didn't those guys like leave the church and da 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 Did you know that Ellen White actually says that even if these guys were to leave the church, this is a heaven-sent message and should be heeded? She literally says that. She also says the latter rain is literally falling. The loud cry is literally happening right now. She gave a resounding endorsement to the great gospel emphasis that the full Adventist message with the Christ-centered emphasis would be what finishes the work. That's what she said. That's what was happening. Unfortunately, we did not embrace that at that time, but I believe that Adventism's best days are just ahead of us. I'm not complaining about the past. I believe we can learn lessons from the past, and our best days are just ahead of us when we embrace Christ at the center of this message and take it to the world. 
It was meant to bring revival. She literally says the message Jones and Wagner were sharing was the Laodicean message to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She says that. And I believe it's the most winsome and non-combative way to share a message with the world. There are prejudices that people have against Adventists. You're a bunch of legalists. All we're going to hear is Moses and Sinai. And when the Adventist message was approached as these guys did it, it also disarmed the prejudice of those who hated this message and brought many more into the church. So it brings revival inside, and it only heightens our evangelism outside. It's a most precious gift. I encourage you, take time to study it. Your life will be better. Your view of God will be better. Your view of yourself will be better. If you have any questions, my email address I'll have up on the slide here. Uh, feel free to email me if you want my notes or resources or other things. There's plenty of things I can give you to resource you, to help you on that journey. But I hope and pray from just the taste of samplings of the 1888 message that we shared this morning will pique your interest that the gospel really is good news, that this really is the hour of salvation that God is offering to us as a people. What I'd like to do is invite Sarah to come up and sing. And then I want to close in prayer after we do that. I want you to reflect upon what you've heard today and the fact that if you're struggling in your faith experience, that things aren't what you wish that they would be, and you're wondering, can God actually accept me in my current condition? Listen to what's shared, and then we'll close with a word of prayer at the end of her song.
Jesus, you revealed to us today, you long for us to be in that kingdom. You long for us to be with you where you are, and you've made a promise to us today that if we come into your presence, you will in no wise cast us out. And as we come boldly to your throne of grace, we may obtain grace to help us in our time of need, grace and mercy. So Lord, I ask in this moment that you'd forgive our sins. Some of us, we've been so hard on ourselves far harder than you ever would be. I pray that you would give us the ability to see ourselves as you see us, that our sins and our lawless deeds you remember no more when we lay them at your feet. Some of us are still beating ourselves up for things that you've already forgiven us for, and I pray that we would let it go today, that we would choose to embrace and receive your grace and healing and forgiveness. Lord, forgive us. Maybe we have unhealthy pictures of you. I pray that through the little tokens that we've seen today that we would see that you've always been for us. You've never been against us. You're not looking over our shoulders, looking for reasons to cast us off or push the red button. You're looking for every reasonable, ethical reason within the parameters of free will and the great controversy to see us in that city. Lord, I pray that we would believe that today, that we would rise, take up our mats, and walk. And lastly, I pray, Lord, if there's someone in this room who's feeling stirred by your spirit to say yes to you, maybe for the first time, maybe the first time again, we would just raise our hands to heaven. Lord Jesus, I want to commit my life to you. I want to recommit my life to you. If you really are who this person is saying that you are, then I want in. I want my life to be in your hands. I want to be drawn closer to you. Lord Jesus, you see our hands. Most importantly, you know our hearts. And I just pray that none would leave this place without giving you their life. They would commit themselves into your care. We love you, Lord, and we want to love you more. And so I pray that you would reveal your love to us more so that can be the case. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. 
And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.